Applesore San Francisco is proud to present Andrew Stanton, director of John Carter, and as well as our guest moderator, Jeffrey Anderson from the San Francisco Examiner. Put your hands together, everybody. Hi, everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeff Anderson. This is Andrew Stanton. Hello. And his movie, John Carter, is going to be opening in theaters tomorrow. Uh, no, Friday. Today's like, Wednesday. I think midnight, a lot of places, but Friday. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I've seen the movie. I think it's terrific. So, um, OK, my first question for you is, uh, John Carter, who was created by Edgar Rice Burroughs, is officially 100 years old as of this year. Right, the book and, is uh, called The Princess of Mars, and right. it came out 100 years ago to last month. And Burroughs also created Tarzan, who was also 100 years old. There's been a doz dozens of Tarzan movies, but this is the first official big screen John Carter movie. Right. Do you know why that is? I think it's a lot easier to put a guy in a loincloth and put him in the tree uh, than it is to realize what this world has to look like uh, and all the, all the characters and creatures that he invented. And I just think people, for as much as they've wanted to put it on the screen in film for probably the last 60 years, uh, uh, it's... Uh, it's just been technologically either impossible or a head scratcher or they just financially not feasible until literally the last 10, 10 years I think people got serious about whether they could put it on the screen. Yeah, I guess up until now there'd have to be a guy in a green suit or something. Right? It, it, would, it gets silly really fast yeah. if, uh, if you had to do it the uh, old fashioned way. Yeah. Okay. Um, usually he's called John Carter of Mars, but this movie is just playing John Carter. Do you think, do people really know who he is? What was the decision? Well, it's never been called John Carter. Uh, I mean, he's never been called John Carter of Mars, and the book was always A Princess of Mars. John Carter mm -hmm. of Mars was our conceit. Okay. We just thought it was a little bit more talking about who the main character was. And the, and the, and the harsh truth, I know a lot of people don't have a hard time believing this, but there's a large portion of people that think they don't like science fiction, like they've already put in their mind what that means. And it's sort of like saying a film's subtitled, and then you get a lot of people that say, oh, I don't like to read, so I don't want to see that movie. And the, and the truth is that you're shutting off like a lot of films you might really, really like. And, and this, I guess, has to be categorized in that world just because there's no other genre really locking in, but I'd almost say it's more about a, a, a romantic adventure. Um, and that's really what the book felt like. It felt like a, an author that wanted to find one last continent on our planet and find one more culture that's been concurrently, you know, in parallel, always existing. Uh, it's really, it just loosely deals with space. And, um, and I think the of Mars, when they, they had a lot of people ask about the title last year, it was turning off a lot of people just off first instinct. They, they didn't even want to know what it was about. And that was a little frustrating. Um, and the truth is, so they asked me politely if I would consider just making it John Carter, and I thought, I slept on it for about a week and I thought, you know what, it's actually about John Carter. It's all about how he earns that title. And so I made sort of a, a deal with him. Could we try this sort of narrative thing that I want to give away, but I said, you know, I just want to make sure people leave the theater correctly. Um, because if there are more films, of Mars will always be involved in it. But I, it, you know, if people need to um, learn to get acquired to that taste, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about, yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, now, you've come from um, a long, terrific career of animation, and this is your sort of official uh, live-action debut. Yeah. And I think that one of the benefits of having been an animator is that you have this, the movie has this terrific visual style in which the action is very clear, and there's a, a, a full establishing of three-dimensional space, and, the, and mm -hmm. every action scene is absolutely exciting and clear, and you know exactly what's going on and where everybody is. Is that something that came from your skill as an animator? Yeah, when you're in animation, you don't get anything for free. Everything has to be planned. Every poster in Andy's room, every leaf on every tree, it's like it all has to be figured out, planned by somebody or some group. You don't get to just walk out with a camera and just find something. <laughs> um, and you don't accidentally go to a thrift store and think, well, there's the jacket, or uh, capture an actor just improving. It all has to be planned. And so that was something I knew really well, was just being really, really overly prepared, you know, in comparison to how I think some people can be for live action. But for a movie of this scope and scale, um, it's almost irresponsible not to be that, that planned with it. And, uh, but that, that did help me from an animation standpoint. Okay. Yeah, I, I really like the look of this, especially because so many other sort of action movies are very shaky. 
there's lots of... Yeah, I mean, shaky has its place. It's yeah. cool, but anything can be overused, uh, yeah. no matter where it comes from. And, um, you know, we tried to, to have a nice balance of stuff. I mean, I definitely wanted it to not seem too calculated. Um, that was my goal, was to have it seem like uh, a history film. Like a film about Martian history that we just, you know, we've done our Martian history really and researched it really, really well. And so I wanted it to feel like we were really there, that we just sort of airdropped in with a camera crew and sort of found this going on. That's part of my favorite kind of history films. This may seem date me, but like I remember films like um, Monty Python's Life of Brian or The Holy Grail, and, and, and they had these really sort of uh, dirty, rough on the edges. You could almost smell the world. It just seemed like it was just found. Yeah. And even though it was a comedy, you really bought the authenticity of the environment. And that was really a touchstone for us, was to just have that sort of gritty, cultural, old, ancient authenticity. Right, like, like it already existed rather than it had just been invented for the movie. Absolutely, and that's what made us have to go out into locations and really shoot there. So you have, you've talked a lot about how this movie is at least half animated. And, mm -hmm. and how, can you talk about how much was shot live and how much was, was yeah, created? Yeah, it's, it's almost a 50-50 film. It, if we've done our job right, you won't be able to tell that. It'll just seem like it was predominantly live. Yeah, you can't, yeah. And that you believe, even though it's kind of wild, you've never seen things like this, they look like they're really there. That was the goal. But technically, there's more animated shots in this than in any animated film I've ever worked on. I mean, more than Nemo, more than Wally, -E. And so it really was shooting a live action picture and then spending a year and a half doing an animated picture. And I, I knew that that was really the only way that that could be realized uh, to, to the way we wanted it to look. So was there a lot of stuff in the studio in front of a green screen or were you actually out in the desert for a lot of If it, I could or? have had my way, I would have had none. Uh, just because I, I wanted it to be that believable, and I think that you can sense it. I think you can sense when you're watching a, a live-action CG combo movie, if there's too much computer graphics on the screen, it gets a little cold, mm. gets a little distancing. Even if it's beautiful, even if it's well done, you, uh, it, 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 can risk, it has the risk of doing that. Yeah. And so I wanted to ensure that it wouldn't go that way. So I thought, how much real can we have in front of the camera? So that meant going to locations, building as much of the set as we were allowed to build. Um, anybody that was acting for a character that was gonna be animated, I'd wanted the actor really there in front of the camera, acting against the other actors. Even when it came to pets, there's this, there's this callet, this uh, big sort of desert toad dog. There was a puppeteer with a whole head of foam with the, uh, the eyes that moved and the mouth that went up and down uh -huh. that perfectly to scale of exactly what the animal was so that when any of the actors were dealing with Willa, they were looking at eyes and reacting and, and improving a bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that all your reactions were as believable as possible. Yeah. yeah. I love that guy, by the way. The Everybody does. Terrific. Everybody loves it. Right, right in the book, you fall in love with that yeah. character. Yeah. Where do you guys see him? <laughs> Um, let's see, can we talk maybe a little bit about your first experience with John Carter? It was, it was through the Marvel comic book, right? Yeah, I was um, over my friend's house and uh, his, he and his brothers were drawing these uh, big, tall, ten-foot-tall creatures with forearms and tusks and I was like, what are those? And they said, oh, these are Tharks. And they pulled out these comic books. I didn't read much and comic books were sort of my gateway drug. And, uh, <laughs> And so they showed me that, all, it was, I was 11, it's 1976, there were all these, uh, this limited series of comic books uh, about uh, the whole world of John Carter. And that led me to finding out that these were from books. And so that led me to the reading the books and finding out that there were 11 of them. Um, between 1912 and 19, I think 58 or 59, I may be a little off on there, somewhere in the late 50s, early 60s, the last one was yeah. written, I think even posthumously was, was the last one. Yeah. yeah, but before I was born. And um, so it was always, already this, they were, it, I call it, it, was my Harry Potter series. I mean, it was, just, it was just this promise that every time I finished a book, I could go to another one. And, um, and it, was, it, it was such a, a great ride that my desire ever since then to see this world on the screen wasn't to just see the first book, it was to see the series. So that was always the desire with this movie was to plan a longer journey, uh, knowing we had a roadmap already with all the books. And so that's our hope. 
And you just basically wanted to see this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. completely selfishly, I just wanted to go there. And I wanted to uh, feel the same way I felt when I was 11 reading the books. I was very fortunate that who, who I wrote with, uh, uh, Mark Andrews, who was from Pixar and is directing Brave, and Michael Chabon, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author, did The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Um, they had both grown up with the book at almost the same age. Mm. So it was this wonderful circle of accountability where not only did we become better writers for having to bounce stuff off each other, but if we, you know, any book has to be adapted some way or another to make it work in another medium, to make it work on the screen as a film. Mm -hmm. um, so if we all three felt like that changed helped, then we felt comfortable it was a worthy change. Okay. How did you get Michael Chabon? Because he's really one of my no. favorite writers and he wrote <laughs> Wonder Boys. Uh, he has a credit on Spider-Man 2. He's, yeah. he's a terrific writer. How did you yeah. how did you land this great genius? Uh, just uh, I, I, I it's just kismet. It's really it was kismet. I um, met him. He came to visit Pixar uh, like the year before I was doing Nemo, and then after Nemo came out, came out, I actually my family bumped into his family at the same vacation spot in Hawaii and got to sort of know each other a little better, wow. and then didn't see him again for years and an artist was working on the development art when I already was working on this project in, in its first year happened to be at a party with him and telling him what he was working on and Michael Chabon kind of lost it and said oh my gosh I love those books growing up I've always wanted to see that on the screen and it was right at the time I was looking for another writer to help because we were getting too busy and I didn't want to shortchange the writing and so I thought, this is, there's no way he's going to say yes to this. He's so good and he's always busy. You know, he's got a million irons in the fire. And so I called him and he said yes before I could finish. I mean, it was just, uh, it was just the luck of the draw. And we got along so well. I mean, the, the, the hardest part was the first time I ever had to uh, disagree with him about something he wrote because it was so intimidating. I mean, yeah. he's a Pulitzer Prize winning right. author. Who the hell am I, you know? Right, right. So... What was that thing? Can you say? Oh God, I don't remember. Okay. I put it past me right away. All right. And then we, we got right into this wonderful group think. This you know where we were we were, we wrote as a as a group even though we individually had to run off and go into our corners and hammer on stuff. It came back as a collective and mm -hmm. and we always worked on it together. Okay. Now I like what you were just saying uh, that he uh, he wrote he writes at night. Oh yeah. The, the, this was a wonderful sort of luck thing where I don't write at night. Like I need to see my TV shows. So I, I, I try to write in the morning, in the middle of the day, or early in the evening. He writes at night. He writes, he puts his kids to bed and then starts writing at nine and then writes till 3 a.m. And then he goes to bed for four hours and he wakes up and starts the day with a family. And he's like clockwork. He does it every night. I don't know. I, he's like a robot. And so I would finish my pages and hit send at like seven or eight. And then it was like the cobbler going to bed and like the elves were working on the shoes. And then in the morning, you know, I, you know, I'd wake up and there they were, these perfect little shoes, you know, sitting on the doorstep for me to like either use or, or to then, you know, jump off from. It was fantastic rhythm. Now, um, speaking of your own skill as a writer, and you've been nominated for Best Screenplay four times, um, you studied animation. So where, where does the writing come in? How did you learn how to be a writer? That's a fluke because I didn't do well in high school. I didn't do well in English, um, and but I was always making up stories, and I was always doing stories, whether it was plays or or running around with a Super 8 camera with my friends. But I never considered that writing. It wasn't until I was working on Toy Story, and we were working with uh, Joss Whedon. A lot of people don't realize Joss Whedon was one of the major writers on Toy Story and went on to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you know, now he's doing the Avengers and all this wonderful stuff. And he's an amazing writer, was always an amazing writer. And I got to see firsthand for almost a year what screenwriting really was. It sort of demystified it. Uh, and I suddenly realized that, you know, because he would sit with us in, in, in these wonderful group story sessions where we'd sort of think tank and have a gag session, go back and forth and stuff. And then he'd go off and type in his room and come back and then these be these amazing pages that just forced these images in your head. Like they were so well described. It wasn't flowery language. It was just the way it was put together. You couldn't help but see the movie. And it, and it really, you know, I was like 24 at the time and it, and it made me realize, oh, 
it's cinematic dictation. It's a blueprint of what you're going to do later. It's not meant for light reading like in the airport. It's, 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 it's meant to plan. And I went, oh, well, I've always known what I want to see on the screen. I just never knew that there was this, exactly how that was formed correctly on the, on the it, it wasn't easy, but man, once I got it, I kind of got me over the, the hump of being intimidated by the word writing. Because I thought, well, screenwriting is different. It's, it's, it's planning. And, um, and that's what got me going on it. And I found out I was not bad at it. OK. Um, uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to um, talk about the, uh, the, the, the moving into a live action film. Um, I've heard you say that it's actually not that different, really, in the, in the grand scheme of things, because you're still working with the same yeah. people and still doing the same types of designing. Yeah, I don't mean for that to sound like it's easy. Yeah. It's not easy wherever you're making a movie. Uh, How specifically did it relate to, the, to, uh, relate, to the, relate to the actors? Like, for example, you worked with Willem Dafoe yeah. in this movie and also in Finding Nemo. Yeah. What was the difference there? Well, I mean, the big difference is that you're concentrating on what he looks like and, and what he's visually doing as much as what he's saying and how it sounds. Um, but you're still trying to get an honest performance. Yeah. But the directions of how, it's, how somebody's going to physically look and act on the screen is not foreign to me. I've always just had to do it as a separate job with the animator. Mm -hmm. So I've always had to bifurcate talking about the scene and what the character's going through and what it's all about with the actor in front of the microphone and then save the whole visual talk about the same discussions about what the motivation is and where your marks are and all that stuff with the animator, mm -hmm. which I like to call a shy actor. <laughs> and it's those two together that gives you a single performance that you think is just one character. So I just had to sort of learn to be quick and put both those thoughts together at the same time. Okay. And also, um, I was fortunate that I I kind of wanted to go into acting growing up, and that when I was in college, I was most of my, my really good friends were actors, and so I sort of had a sideline view of it more professionally. And I just knew that um, it's not a, it's not, you don't want to over-describe stuff. You don't want to um, act like a puppeteer controlling the strings. You want to just motivate them to naturally come to the place by their own decision-making. But it's that you actually have to do with voice acting. I mean, when, when you're talking to them, from the, you, you can't tell them, like, say it like this or, or emphasize this word. It's just going to kill it. You have to kind of trick, like, you can tell them um, the color, but they get, they get to pick the shade. I don't know how else to put it. Okay. And so yeah. you can say, you know, I want to go to the store might be the line, but you want to say, well, say it like you're on fire. It may have nothing to do, the scene may have nothing to do with them on fire, but you let them decide the energy that they would be if they were on fire about it. I'm getting all like, you know, theater, theatery, but that's, that's that kind of talk and leading the actor to a place without really telling them what to do. You have to have that skill when you're in the voice sessions. Mm -hmm. And so it was just the same skill on the set. You know, but you do have to think on your feet. Like, I have to worry about how the, how the whole package is coming across. Yeah, yeah. Um, my big worry, I haven't had time about this, was how the heck do you do it when there's three actors like all in the same shot? Right. And what if somebody's good on the first take and somebody else is only good on the fifth take? Right. And it was like sort of, duh, I could have had a V8. Once I was on set, I realized, well, you're never going to you know, use the only shot that has all three of them in it. There, you know, you, now you have to do a coverage of just like over the shoulder of that actor, and then you have to do over the shoulder of the other actor and the other actor. And you just learn, oh, when it's their turn, then I'll know which take is the one that's sort of really planned right, for. Right. And you really can sort of separate it. In an animated film, you're working with one actor at a time. Right? No, I'm working with 50 animators on one fish. Right, right. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> It, I, 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 it's like, you know, trying to herd cats and yeah. make sure that, like, it all looks like one character with a thought. <laughs> so the fact that I can be on set and just talk to one actor about one character for one line, eh, it's, a it's a lot movie. easier. Yeah. Yeah. Now, most people probably don't know this, but you're the voice of Crush, the turtle in, in Finding Nemo. So, yeah. right? Was that, your, was that your, your great... Did that get all the acting out of your system, or...? Uh, it was more acting than I ever signed up for. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, okay. you guys want me to do it, don't you? <laughs> hey, dude. <laughs> Go see Carter on the 9th. It's awesome. Whoa. 
Okay, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to embarrass you there. I won't sell myself without a plug, so there you All go. Right. <laughs> All right, now uh, one of the things that, that I think probably people are going to notice about this is that it, uh, it vaguely resembles Avatar, in which that Avatar probably um, borrowed from the original book. Well, I'd like um, to say inspired. inspired Honestly, yeah. I mean, I love Avatar. I love Star Wars. I love Superman. I love Flash Gordon. I really love all these things that yeah. are inspired by it. To be honest, I mean, I honestly, I, I read the book of Princess of Mars the beginning of the year, I don't, I don't know where, somewhere in 76, and then about six or eight months later, I, I'm bad on my timeline, but like after that, I saw Star Wars almost in a calendar year, and uh, I didn't put two and two together. Yeah, yeah. So it just shows you that like, you know, you can have a romantic comedy publication inspire other romantic comedies and not always put it together. You right, know what I mean? So right. it just feels like I, I get great art inspires great art. I've never seen art that, that wasn't inspired by other things. You may not always track it or you may not see all the, the mixtures of what they were, right. but it's never in a vacuum. No. We're, we're all products of things that have inspired us. And I didn't know that Superman had been inspired by John Carter as well. The, yeah. the concept of being able to fly in lighter gravity was, was, was from John Carter right. as well. Right, and I think if you read the book or see the movie, you'll see how much specific identity that story has that's never been capitalized on, yeah. that's never been grabbed and uh, embraced, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah. And just embraced for its sort of wonderful, innocent romance of adventure and exploration. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think that's the difference between this and Avatar. Avatar was trying to sell sort of an idea, and you're trying to sell some more of an adventure and, a, and an emotion and a discovery and an experience. And I think maybe that's harder to well, get across. Well, that's the thing that resonated. I mean, you can go look at the book. I could look at the book in the 70s and tell that, that there were bad writing choices in it, that it was a freshman effort. <laughs> yeah. It was a freshman effort. Yeah. But man, you know, a lot of freshman efforts, they, somebody taps into something great, yeah. something mythic that uh, it's, you know, like they, they, they drilled and oil came up. And they may have been a little messy containing it, but it's oil, you yeah. know. And, and I feel like um, there's a reason that resonated with so many generations, even though it's been dwindling. And not as many people know about it now as they did maybe 60, 70 years ago. It still affects people. And so that, and that you just know there's something true that it's tapped into. And that's the thing that we wanted to um, protect. That's yeah. the thing we wanted to put on the screen and protect. Uh, if people were going to end up seeing this film first before they ever read the book or never read the book, then maybe they'd at least know the same feeling and the, the same identity of, of who that person was in the book. Um, I was just curious as to if you had, um, you were sort of on loan from Pixar to Disney for this yeah. movie, technically. <laughs> how, how, much, uh, how much freedom did you have on this, on this movie? Uh, well, I was fortunate. I have a long-term relationship with Disney. I've known, you know, some of these people there. You know, it's not a big corporate, you know, um, uh, overseer. I mean, it's, it's, it's several names that I've known since 1992. And uh, so there's been a long time of trust. Um, but also very, you know, a lot of transparency, a lot of honesty with each other. So I, I, it was very cooperative. I mean, once you're out shooting in, in the colds of London or in the, in, the, in the hot desert winds of Utah, not a lot of people come visit you. And uh, so that, you know, it, it, it works out. You get, you get your work <laughs> done. You know? You're not going to send the executives out there <laughs> but to spy I, on you. I'm just fortunate I didn't, there wasn't the executives. I mean, they're, they're people I know really well with, for, on a first name basis. And um, that have credible ideas, and also um, have always allowed me to, to 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 run far before it was time to check in. And um, and so that re that relationship was already established. It's not like I literally left Pixar to go make this film. My offices are still there. I still answer my phones there. I've been there for you know. I only left for like six months to shoot in 2010, and then I I've, I've been back at Pixar. I've been here in San Francisco ever since. You know. Oh, the actual shooting was, was six months? Yeah. But the whole thing took years. Well, the animated part was, had to be done in London, so I was flying to London about every two, th two to three weeks for a year and a half. I, d I finally stopped going to London in December. Okay. So I have a lot of miles. I want to go back to, <laughs> I want to, go back to, Bur to Burroughs for a second. You, you decided to make Burroughs a character in the movie. No, that was in the book. That's in the book? That's in a lot of the books. Oh, okay. It was a great conceit by yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs. Um, 
seems weird at first, yeah. but um, I'm sorry if I'm repeating anybody that's seen the TED Talk, but it really it was this great story device that kind of learned early as a kid, which was uh, when somebody tells you that it didn't happen to them, it happened to somebody else, and here's the journal they left, it, it, it really kind of invites you in. Like, what'd yeah. you find out? Yeah. And, um, and, and that's what it was always attractive and romantic about the books. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. No, so I can't take any credit. You have to give it to Edgar Rice Burroughs. Okay. <laughs> it's too bad he's not here. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, when did the 3D come into it? Was it, when did? Um, 3D always seems to be, ever since about uh, 2007 or 6, I think 3D's become a conversation in any movie that's getting developed and made. I mean, I, I had lots similar conversations on Wally, and I had the similar response that I had on Wally that I did with, with Carter, which is, I just find making movies hard enough as it is, and to have another issue to have to juggle and think about while shooting, maybe I'll get to a point where I find that's an interesting challenge, but I just found it possibly a deterrent. So. I, uh, or a distraction, so I just said, can we just save it for the back end? And um, there was still a question by the time Wally came out whether everybody should be going that way, but not so much by the time Carter came out. Okay. And um, I just made sure that, the, that somebody that really, really had an eye for it, more than I did, uh, which fortune was this guy Bob Whitehill at Pixar, who's really good at it, uh, Soup was able to be free and supervise it, and he gave it all this love and care. He really considers the story behind everything. You know, he's playing with depth and uh, separation, uh, all based on narrative issues. And when you, when you do your job right like that, you forget you're watching it in 3D within minutes. Right, right. And, uh, he, and it's all because of him. Yeah, it definitely And, it, and his crew, the, all, all the crews that worked under him. Yeah, I think if it's bad 3D, it kind of jumps out at you, but well, if it's good, then it works. It's like anything else. Yeah. You make, start making bad choices, and it all becomes a distraction. Yeah, but this was good. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, oh, I just lost my last question. Should we... Um, <laughs> You'll remember. Oh, no, I remember. Um, so you... Um, you said you purchased, you have the rights to the first three books in the series. Well, so, uh, getting, or, back or, to, yeah, getting back to talking about the series, um, yeah. we always saw it as a, the hope for a series to go on. You know, I mean, and if yeah. it's truly a series and these movies take years to be made, it'll live on, hopefully, if we're, if we're lucky, longer than we will. Yeah. Um, and so we said to do that properly, let's get the rights to the first three books. Trilogies are sort of a known thing. Three is a good number. And yeah. let's plan for... Uh, um, sort of how the long-term story will go uh, based on these books and treat it like a television series, like a first season. Um, and we'll treat the first one like a pilot. But I, I don't like uh, big open-ended endings, cliffhanger movies. I, I, I like that there's closures, particularly emotional closure. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's make sure that each one's planned so that it wraps up whatever it started at the beginning, um, yeah. and only certain meta-issues will be kept open-ended if we wanted them to, to continue. So if, if this ends up being the only version of the, uh, of the movie that goes out there, it holds on its own, and if we're lucky to go on, it will, it will go on. And, and then similarly, we want to say, if somebody comes in and sees number two and never sees number one, we want that to hold up on its own. Right. Which, it takes a lot of planning, and I knew it would take a lot of planning, so I said, let's start planning that early. So we've been planning that ever since 07. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with no guarantee, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just as practical as anybody else. It's like, this has got to do well for, for that to happen. But I don't want to be caught with my pants down and not be able to give it the time and care it would need if they suddenly happen to go that way. So. Yeah, well, I hope it does really well because I want to yeah. I want to see more. Both, so. <laughs> okay, um, let's see. Uh, five, minutes, five more minutes? Okay. Um, well, somebody asked me, I, I hear they're planning on doing a, a 3D Finding Nemo. Is that... Is that going to happen? Oh yeah, they've been. It's it's uh, it's almost done, I think, mm -hmm. and uh, it's coming out, I think, in the fall. Yeah, the fall. And uh, do you do you approve all that stuff or? Are you uh, not. Or? I, I was so busy on this, I was I wasn't able to like really get involved. But Bob was the same guy yeah. on Carter, and um, it, it's it's weird. It's going to look like we meant to make it 3D because hey. of the depth, because the infinite depth that the ocean gives yeah. you. Um, it's gonna it's gonna be something extra special for that. It's it's really weird. Mm. Yeah, it's just one of those perfect. They, these two flavors just really work well together. Yeah, yeah, that's what I imagine. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, you know what I didn't talk about? Your lead actor, uh, Taylor Kitsch. Taylor Kitsch, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and also Lynn Collins, who plays the princess. Yes. She's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so can you maybe talk about uh, finding them? Yeah, well, that was my big hope, was to sort of find people that had all the gravitas and the talent of what you would expect from major stars that are already established, but were sort of um, either unfound or up and coming. Mm -hmm. um, because when you're when you're doing these sort of iconic roles, you want to believe you don't want to be spending some of your movie trying to make people forget who they were and 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 now think of them who they are playing. And I wanted you to just you know drop in and go, that's John Carter, that's Deja Thoris, and um, and same with you know a lot of other roles, and uh, but particularly those two. And uh, so Taylor, I had in mind from the get go. But I always, I had this ageism thing. I thought he might be too young. I, I was completely fooled when he was playing Riggins in Friday Night Lights and thought he was 16, 17. But he was years older than that. And um, by the time we were going to shoot, he was 27 going on 28. And I still thought, well, is that too young? And then when I found out that uh, Sean Connery was actually 29 when he played Bond <laughs> and Dr. No, and Harrison Ford was 31, 32 when he was in Star Wars, I was like, oh, I'm just the one that's too old. <laughs> and uh, thinks everybody's too young that's younger than me. And, uh, and it, you know, I was happy because I wanted to really consider him seriously. I just had this ageism thing. And Lynn, Lynn I, she's a chameleon. I had admired in other properties, other films, and not known that was always her. And she came in and just gave me such a, a passionate read that I never forgot her. I was still sort of... Um, superstitious that I, uh, or uh, paranoid that I needed to really sort of canvas everybody. But I kept coming back to her every week. And yeah. then, so she ended up on the short list. And uh, the minute I saw the two of them together, uh, it, it just worked. It just yeah. worked. She, I saw her in a great, uh, she's in The Merchant of Venice as Portia. She's terrific. Yeah. She's a, well, she's a, uh, a very well-trained uh, Shakespearean actress from yeah. Juilliard. And uh, that's really her, her first love. And it fits for this movie. I mean, a lot of actors in this movie um, do great on the stage and, and have their, their Shakespeare background because it can sound like uh, a pulp Shakespeare almost, sort of the, yeah. way, Bur the way Burroughs wrote. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I, and I needed people that really committed to it, that, that it wasn't going to seem silly. Yeah, yeah. And he was a genuine pulp writer. People know the phrase pulp fiction now, but he yeah. actually wrote on real pulp magazines. Yeah, yeah. literally, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He was actually a pencil sharpener. Really? Yeah. I heard he was an ad checker. Yeah, he did that as well, but I think he actually checked pencils to make sure, you know, before they went out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah. what sort of drove him nuts, and he had to do something else and write a book. Yeah, the story was that he was, he was checking ads or sharpening pencils in the pulp magazines, and he realized he could write better stories than the stuff he was reading. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. exactly. Okay, I think it's just about time to take some questions from the audience. Okay, do we have a microphone going around? Okay, right back there. Uh, hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering um, if this is a commercial success, are you thinking about doing other Burroughs works that aren't as well known like this, like um, The Muck Mucker, specifically? <laughs> I didn't even know about that one. He's, was, he became quite the prolific writer, and uh, it's amazing how much he wrote in his lifetime. But. For me, the the uh, the world of Barsoom and the and the and the Carter world is, is enough for, for me. I I think that if, if if I'm lucky enough to do another one or or the other two, uh, that's a good chunk of my life. Uh, so that's enough for me. But okay, these guys right down here were next. Or, right. Ah. Hi. Hi. I was just wondering, as a writer. Um, I'm trying to break into screenwriting and film, and I was wondering if you had any advice for anyone who's trying to do stuff like that. Um, you know, I don't have any practical, like, networking kind of advice. I'm very spoiled in the sense that I learned while already being hired somewhere, and I've never had to leave. I've never had to get, get an agent and do all that stuff that most, you know, people have to do. Um, but... Um, all I would say is that what I do have a lot of experience in is just having to write scripts all the time. And uh, you can never rewrite enough. I'll just put it that way. So, um, you know, no matter how good you think it is, you could probably rewrite again. And you could probably get, uh, you know, find people that you really trust whose tastes 
you seem to grok with. Uh, they don't have to match perfectly, but you just you admire their 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 sensibility and um, get as honest of opinion as you can early and get a thick skin as early as you can um, because it's always going to be about the rewriting, not about the writing. Um, that's the best advice I can give you on from an artistic standpoint. So, sure. Hey guys. Okay, about right there. Oh. And then you. Hi. Um, Hi. Huge fan. Um, I saw it last night at an early screening. Oh, cool. Uh, here, and it was awesome. Oh, Just great. Awesome. Thank you. And the theater loved it, and everyone was cheering at the end. Oh, great. Throughout it, and so um, congratulations, because it was really, really cool. Oh, thanks. And uh, the ending was awesome. Shut up. So, oh, man. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. No, it was I, awesome. I don't. I was. I was doing Q&A at Google. I'm, I'm going to let you ask a question, but I was doing Q&A at Google today, and I was sort of lamenting how I really feel like we were the last lucky generation of seeing movies because we knew nothing every time we went to see a movie. We knew squat. And the amount of joy and surprise you got by knowing nothing and just taking a gamble every weekend and just seeing something purely because of the title and the poster, um, it's a, it was a huge, huge thrill. Like, you got addicted to that. And to think that most people now, including my kids and stuff, know more than they even think realize it when they come in it's it's just kind of a bummer it's like people have read half the book to you before you open it up and read it but i will say that the first the whole beginning i had no idea how it was shut up i'm just saying <laughs> i'm just saying that it, it, a lot was hidden i felt at least from the trailers okay. from what cool. i saw i was cool I was all surprised. right all right uh, my question is is that um wally was the first movie that you guys did at pixar that incorporated live action yeah um and so, and you mentioned 2007, so I'm guessing yeah. there was some overlap here, but did you get like bitten by the live action bug? Is that what you wanted to do? No, I was already pregnant with Carter um, <laughs> uh, uh, while I was making Wally and had already committed to doing a little bit of live action um, because I couldn't figure out uh, how to. Uh, what was the smarter way to make it look like it was our world that had gotten screwed over in Wally, and not a cartoon world. And there's still debates about it. You can see, you know, a million old, ancient, dust-covered blogs about, eh, I don't think they should have done that, blah, blah, blah. But I honestly think that had you seen CG humanity in the commercials at the very beginning, it would have had a whole other set of problems. And some of the reality and believability of Wally being stuck out in the middle of nowhere would have been lost. So I still stand by it. But um, but, but but to be honest, it was just sort of a coincidence that I was doing a little bit of live action on that. And and, and I thought, I mean, <laughs> here I am shooting like Fred Willard standing there in a podium. And and then the other the other shots are like three lock off. It was two lock off shots and like one tracking shot. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, you know. And and. Uh, <laughs> You would have thought we were making, you know, uh, the great, you know, uh, Godfather Godfather's or movies or something with this, and only to find out that that was just like small potatoes by the time I got on this film. Fred Wilder is great anyway. Yeah. All right, let's see. Who's next? Uh, oh, yeah, we're here. Yeah, hi. Um, I kind of wanted to ask about your process more about, like, to when you stopped thinking as a writer and started thinking as a director. Um, I know that a lot of times when I write and direct my own stuff, I get blocked off from other people's ideas when they say, you know, oh, this might work, this might work. I'm like, no, I wrote it. I right. know how it's supposed to work. Right. So how was your process in, like, when you stop thinking as a writer and start thinking as a director? Well, you know, the, 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 the truth is, is that if you are the director, the buck stops with you. So that means you should have, it should means, so it actually means you should have the guts to just take all the advice you get and hear it. Because at the end of the day, you get, you get to do whatever you decide. So what's, does, what's it going to hurt to hear other ideas and to try other suggestions if there's time and money and you can afford to? Um, you still win at the end of the day. You're the one in the editing you know, bay choosing what you finally want. And so since, since you always get final say, then you shouldn't be closing off all the other... I'm saying this all the time to other sort of first-time directors at Pixar. And, and I, I, I tell them that, like, don't be afraid of, of collaborating and getting all these suggestions, even if they contradict stuff. Like, truly consider them. And, you know, you do have to, like, manage the time and, and all that stuff. 
And the other thing I'm always saying is that because you're the director doesn't mean you have to be the one with the ideas. That's the trap you'll fall into. You are the facilitator of the best idea. You, can get, you get to take credit if, you, if you've noticed that somebody over there, you know, in, in, the back, in the back row had the best idea. If you brought it forward and you made sure it saw the light of day, then you can take the credit for that. That's your job. It's not to be the one with all the answers. And that's another big trap I see lots of people fall into. And that's a trap I fell into when I was working on Nemo from the first half of that production. And I needed to sort of snap out of it and go, look at, you know, if other people say there's something on your face, listen to them. You know, so. Hmm. Okay, let's see. Let's get somebody from over here. How about, how about right there? So we know that with a lot of trilogies, there is a lot of space in between the two or three. Um, what are you guys doing? And if you choose to use this advice or suggestion, I want to cut. Um, maybe developing an app, something that will be interactive for consumers to use to continue to keep the experience alive in between. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So that people don't forget you exist until the yeah, next one exactly. comes out. Well, there's a movie called Toy Story 3. And I would argue with you that what has been lost from the world is patience. And the desire uh, and, the, um, and the good side of being frustrated that something isn't happening for a while. Um, I actually think that benefited Toy Story 3 huge that people had to wait 15 years. Um, I think that the really courageous, uh, at least artists of today, of today and from now on, will be the people that had the guts to wait, because uh, nobody has anymore, and everybody wants it instantly. And people seem to forget as fast as they intake. And um, and the people that will probably last longer will be the ones that um, don't fall victim to that. Don't don't. Um, sway just because of that pressure, that instantaneous pressure. Um, and you'll seem like the odd man out for a long time, but I, I, I think that, that, uh, that that'll win out. Um, so I'm not against what you're suggesting. I think that might be a great idea. It, it, it's just you, I, I just feel like I don't, it would have to be narratively justified if there's really something cool. I, in other words, I wouldn't want to do it just, just for a marketing gimmick. Um, I would want to do it because it really did help some sort of foundational building by the time the next film came about. So I, I'm very intrigued by that, but um, I can't think of right now exactly what I would do for that. But I'm also not scared of the fact that like, oh, you got forgotten about for four years and then suddenly you show up again. Sometimes that's a huge win. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, let's see, how about, how about you right here? Um, I heard that the one of the original cuts that you showed was just under three hours, and I was wondering... Well, yeah, I don't know if I showed that oh, one. Oh, not showed, but like <laughs> But that was the original cut, yeah. And I was wondering, like, what were some of the challenges you faced having to cut down a movie so much, and like, if it affected how you originally envisioned telling your story? I don't feel like there's anything up... Like, I have no regrets. Uh, you're, if, when the DVD comes out, there's going to be, uh, uh, I think, anywhere from like five to seven scenes, some completely finished, some in the middle of being worked on. Um, but I would never... I don't have a director's cut. You're seeing the director's cut. Um, there's a famous saying by, uh, I think, Oscar Wilde, where he says, I'm sorry I didn't have time to write you a short letter. Um, meaning it, it takes a lot more time to figure out how to edit down and economize something so that it's still saying and getting to the essence of what you were trying to get across all along. It's a lot easier to just over-describe and use several sentences just to get one point across. So that's the natural process. There's no, I mean, that's the way it's supposed to happen. You're just, it's this weird stigma from the outside, but you're supposed to start out fat and then trim, 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 trim down until you figure out, oh, I trimmed too much or this was, you know, should be replaced with that. That's the process. That is what movie making is. So uh, saying that the first assembly was almost three hours and is not saying that's what I wanted or that I wanted to show that. It's just saying that's where I started. 
Uh, that was my rough draft. That was my, you know, my, my thesis, my doctoral, and that's what the first thing that came out. And now the hard work, which is always expected, is how do we start winnowing this down until it feels tight as a drum, you know? So. Okay, we've got time for about two more questions. Let's see. How about right there in the back? Hi, we're about to go see it. Hi. Uh, midnight show, and really excited. Tonight? Uh, tomorrow night. Oh, okay, wow. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I'm very cu curious about the look of the movie. And I'm wondering what you drew upon to find that visual look, the characters, et cetera, from the pulp to the Marvel comics, yeah. et cetera. Um, I didn't really, I tried to, I mean, there's no way I could completely strike from my memory everything I've seen all my life as a fan, you know, but done by whether it's Frazetta or. Uh, Whelan or, or all these other amazing artists that have tried, or even just you know, anonymous people that have just tried stuff, including my own drawings. Um, but uh, what I decided was that, uh, like I think I said it earlier, is I just wanted it to seem historically accurate, not cool for cool sake. Uh, so we pulled, we used as a starting point lots of descriptions of what Burroughs had in not only the first book, but lots of other books. But the production designer, the costume designer, the, the, the set designer, all of us, and the makeup artists, we all sort of looked at history, our history, in any culture, and looked back and sort of pulled things that we felt uh, in and of themselves sort of gave a sense of, 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 uh, of longevity, of culture, of, of you know, history is all about layers of things, sort of people making a decision at one point and then suddenly the rules change and then they adapt off of that and it's like paint going over paint going over paint. You can sense it, you know, the older, the older city you're in versus a newer city, the older house versus the newer house and nothing's always explained but you, you get the sense that there was a purpose for everything was there uh, at one point in, in, in time and that and the used sense of everything and so that was really that was our guide, and so it was. It was quite an eclectic pull to, to get to get all that stuff to sort of have a semblance. It took two years. You had, did you have team, teams of uh, I don't know from broad ranges from comic book kind of creators to illustrators? Uh, no, no. I, I pretty much went straight with a, a, a sort of a small crew of uh, established uh, development artists that. that it's a very gypsy world out there in live action, and they sort of go from film to film to film. And there's definitely some common names that have been um, utilized on several films. Uh, Ryan Church, uh, if you get the art of book, I go into great depth about Ryan Church, and he really sort of set the, you know, you're, it's the same thing on animated pictures. You're, you, you, have a, you, you sick a lot of great artists on stuff, but you're really only looking sometimes for just that one drawing or that one painting that seems to be the touchstone. For Nemo, for example, um, there, it was done, um, uh, it was this, this uh, wonderful uh, black and white pencil sketch that was done of three sharks. And it looked real, and, uh, but caricatured. And I just found it ironic that every other artist for a year did color, 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 color because of the whole underwater paradise. And uh, it was the same thing with, uh, but, but you could just tell right away that was it. And then the same thing happened on this one. Uh, Ryan did um, these airships in the sky, and, and they, they looked like um, some government, some, some city, some government somewhere in the past had approved these tall ships, and, um, and that they were completely built on function, not on form. Uh, and you, you bought the fake science that they they used light to fly and and it, it just like that and um, once you find whatever that one or two drawings are you just go uh, even if you're talking about somebody's costume in another scene you you, you know, it has not and none of that's in that drawing you you tend to go back and you you find yourself looking insane going i want it to feel like that i want it to feel like that and um Ben Burt, who did the sound design on Star Wars and did the sound design on Wally, -E, he told me this great story of uh, doing sound design for Alien. And he was in this upstairs room, and Ridley was in the middle of smoking a set with a miniature for that that uh, that, uh, that uh, initial Alien uh, ship that's uh, that's found on the planet. 
and uh, when he got the smoke just right, he called Ben down and said, that's what I want the movie to sound like. And uh, I completely get it. I completely get what he meant by that. There's just, you just never know what's going to capture the whole tone of the movie. Um, so, that's great. Okay, last question, folks. Let's see, let's get somebody from over here. About right over there at the end. So out of the entire process, like everything from the, like design and the live action and the animation, what was the most frustrating part? Not necessarily the hardest, but the most frustrating, and how do you get through it? Um, this is the, probably one of the only examples where it is easier and nicer in computer, uh, a, a computer's animated world than it is in live action was. I'd finish a shot and I'd go, okay, now I just want to put the camera here. And an hour and a half later, they've moved the cranes, they've moved the lights, they've moved the camera. And you now go, that's the only shot you get for the rest of the day. Uh, that was hard to get used to because you can, in the computer, go whoop, 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 snap, snap, snap. It's probably one of the only things that goes easy for you working with a computer. Uh, but that was, that, was, that, was all, that was clearly it. Uh, so you became... Uh, every morning was a math problem for me. Uh, I, I, I was fortunate. I thought it may have been a mistake, but it turned out to be an asset that I, I wanted to... I was shooting always really far outside London, and so I, but I wanted to stay in London uh, just so that I could have a decent meal at night. And uh, so I ended up having an hour commute every morning, and that, tended, and that ended up being a huge asset because that was a guaranteed hour every morning that I could, with my little Mead notebook, uh, plan out all the shots and already make a roadmap for where I was going to put the camera everywhere because once you got there and you hit the ground, you, you, it was always a math problem. Like, okay, how, how did I, you know, how many angles could I get without, with as few times moving the camera and the lights around? Because uh, that's really the game, uh, is how little do I have to move, can I, can I move the equipment and get as many shots as I possibly can? And it really sounds annoying and unsexy, and it is. But that's, that's, that turned out to be the, one of the big things about uh, shooting live action. So. Cool. Okay, that's all the time we have for now. Uh, thank you, Andrew Stanton. Uh, John Parker opens on March 9th. Midnight tomorrow night. Midnight, March 8th. It's making a big hit so we can see more. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks.